Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here is my joke. It's hilarious. What do you call a cow with no legs? What? Ground beef. No. Ah, so good. I am Rico Galliano. I am Brendan Francis Newman, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a groaner of a joke from actress Allison Pill. That'll help break the ice. She's in Woody Allen's new film, To Rome With Love, and we'll hear more from her later. Also, we speak with Ben Zeitlin, director of the movie Beasts of the Southern Wild. Plus, we hear from art pop band Miki Chu and the Shapes, and comedian Michael Ian Black and journalist Megan McCain are here with etiquette tips that'll help you navigate presidential election season with your friendships intact. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Secretary of Commerce John Bryson is resigning. Ousted Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak is said to be in a coma and on life support. Undocumented immigrants brought here as children no longer need to live in fear of being thrown out of the country. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Rehan Harmansi, who was formerly with the Bay Citizen, is now with BuzzFeed. Rehan, for our audience who doesn't know, what's BuzzFeed? a site dedicated to serious journalism and cat videos. <laughs> um, the two are not mutually exclusive. All right. You're an editor at BuzzFeed. What story are you going to be buzzing about this weekend? So Apple has just been granted a patent for something called digital cloning. Ooh. Um, I read part of the patent application. It appears to be an attempt to circumvent uh, data surveillance Um and they will do that by creating fake identities for real people. Um, and those fake identities can include things like fake credit card accounts or even fake post office boxes. To kind of throw off people who might want to mine your personal data? Exactly. Wow. wow. But wouldn't this be the death of sites like Facebook? I mean, that's how they make their money is by mining supposedly accurate information from you to sell to advertisers. Yeah, it brings up a lot of questions about how advertising will even work. You know, you're being tracked every time you open a website, and that mm. information is being sold. If they create fake logins with your clone... Yeah. Um, on the other hand, it brings up a great excuse if you're caught on a dating website uh, <laughs> by your partner, right? <laughs> it wasn't me. And do you have access to your doppelganger's activity. I mean, what if they choose some really embarrassing things? Like, well, you know, you were spotted on MrMrFanClub.com. <laughs> People might not believe your defense. So yeah. wait a minute. You're saying that, like, Apple would create this for you? This would be kind of randomly created? You know, a lot of it, it's just patent. So um, if I speculated, I would be undoubtedly wrong, but um, it's interesting that the patent was approved. The patent office recognized this is a legitimate problem. Yeah. You know what, Rico? This story sounds very un rayhan like Yeah. I, I wonder if this cloning thing hasn't already maybe happened. Yeah. Um, Rayhan yeah. Harmancy or whoever you are, <laughs> thanks for the small talk. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> and now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our brain-quenching history lesson with booze. First, the history of this week back in 1996. The British government announced the Stone of Scone was going home. Nope, that's not a new prep service for tea cakes. Our friend Michelle Philippi tells the story. The Stone of Scone has to be the most well-traveled 340-pound sandstone brick in history. 
It started out in the town of Scone, Scotland, where for centuries it was used as a ceremonial throne. During coronations, Scottish kings sat on the stone to receive their crowns. They called it the Stone of Destiny. Then, in 1296, England's King Edward conquered Scotland and took the stone on its first trip back to England, where he had a big wooden chair built around it. For the next 700 years, British monarchs were crowned in that chair, symbolically parking their derrieres atop Scotland itself. That didn't sit well with some Scots. So in 1950, they took the stone on another ride. Some Scottish students snuck into Westminster Abbey, pulled the stone out of King Edward's chair, and smuggled it back to Scotland. Three months later, police found it and hauled it right back to England. And there ended its journeys. Just kidding. In 1996, Britain's conservative government sent the stone on its fourth road trip when they decided to return it to its home country. The first glimpse of the stone back home. A ceremonial journey marked its return seven centuries after being taken by the English. Scotsmen celebrated and then voted the conservatives out of office anyway. The stone's not done traveling yet. The deal is, whenever a new British monarch is crowned, the stone has to be sent back to London for coronation day, after which it'll head home, unless it decides to take a vacation in Waikiki. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Hans Gerner from the Kelvin Arms, which is a Scottish bar in Houston, Texas. Hans, I'm guessing with a name like that, you're not of Scottish descent. No, I'm not, but uh, <laughs> you can look at it as Hans is German for Ian. Oh, what's the Kelvin Arms? Uh, how, how did you end up there? Well, I, um, I used to own a German bar, and I sold it, and now I have purchased a Scottish bar. So, What's the difference between a German and a Scottish bar? The Scottish tend to drink a little bit more. <laughs> Better for business. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, Hans, you know, you had a chance to hear the history. Uh, what cocktail did it inspire you to make? Well, I decided to go with the Irish car bomb theme and turn it into a Scottish car bomb type of thing and call it the Kelvin car bomb. So how do you make this drink? It will be a half a pint of Belhaven Scottish Ale. Okay. Then you take a shot glass with a uh, half shot of scotch and then the other half of Drambuie, both fine Scottish products. Okay. Then you drop it into the half pint of Scottish ale, and then you chug. <laughs> I'm afraid what's going to happen, you're going to throw up, and on the wall it'll be the color of a tartan or something. <laughs> you know, it's interesting actually talking to someone in Texas, because you know how Scotland has a kind of an uneasy relationship with the rest of England. They want to be recognized as their own entity, right. yet they're part of the United Kingdom. And, and I, would, I would argue Texas is probably the closest parallel in the U.S. Absolutely. Absolutely. Texas, once upon a time, was an independent nation and actually had a, uh, an embassy in London. Really? I didn't know that. Yes, sir. Well, you, but you haven't yet had a character in James Bond, a la Sean Connery, so you, you guys have a way to go. <laughs> well, we have a shrine to Sean Connery here at the Kelvin Arms. <laughs> oh, do you? Yes, we do. <laughs> So, Rico, a Texas embassy in London must have yeah. been pretty something, you know? <laughs> British guards, I imagine, walking around with fur cowboy hats. Exactly. Maybe. Gin and tonics and huge buckets, <laughs> straws in them. An oil well with a big Ben clock on top, maybe? It's like an Epcot Center after a tornado. Yeah. <laughs> uh, folks, we have an embassy on the Internet. You can seek asylum there. The address is dinnerpartydownload.org. 
And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is actress Alison Pill. She played the drummer in the movie Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Also Zelda Fitzgerald in Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. This week, she's in Allen's latest, To Roam with Love, and in a new TV show. Here she is to tell us about it and her list. I am Allison Pill, and I am on the TV show The Newsroom, which is a new HBO show written by Aaron Sorkin about the trials and tribulations of a crew working at a cable news station. Here's my list of works of art that take us behind the scenes. Number one is Day for Night or La Nuit Américaine by François Truffaut. It's a film from uh, 1973, and it's sort of a little love letter to making movies, which is an entirely different thing than loving movies. I, for instance, love making movies. I don't even like that many movies. So for me, it's a perfect movie, because I'm like, it's so true. <laughs> um, it's not about the movie they're making, which is something called Meet Pamela, I think. The plot of the movie is just what happens when people are in the vacuum of making a movie. And that can be any number of things. It's a Truffaut new wave film, so it does often involve sex, which is never a bad thing in a movie. It's relatively 100% accurate. I mean, here's the thing about actors. Like, you stick that many charismatic people in a room, and, you know, if they've done theater, they're going to be in a massage circle within five minutes. And if they've been in film, they're going to be somewhere in a closet making out. Like, this is just the way actors are. The movie is just, it's wonderful. And it just, you know, it's all about the workplace family. And I think that's one of Aaron Sorkin's biggest obsessions the sort of families that are somewhat chosen in the way that friends are, but not all the way. And this is sort of, I think, one of the best movies about the movie family. Number two would be The War Room, a documentary by D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hegedus behind the scenes of the 92 election uh, and the Clinton campaign. The story follows uh, James Carville and George Stephanopoulos, who are the campaign leaders, two really smart, interesting guys who make The War Room the best sort of buddy cop film if it was a political documentary ever. Besides Bill Clinton, one person really gave his campaign focus and wrote what I call a haiku five months ago. Change versus more of the same. The economy's stupid. I think if you did a nexus, it would come up in about a thousand places. <laughs> and don't forget health care. You know, I, I was kidding James yesterday. I said he's about to pass from the role of regular human being into the role of a legend. Because <laughs> probably for the first time in a generation tomorrow, we're going to win. There had never been that level of access to the day-to-day -day matters of elections what those campaign offices actually look like, that they're really nothing special. They might have carpet if you're lucky, but it's just people working, working so hard, doing something civically. It's still inspiring to see this kind of bare-bones operation elect a man from Arkansas into, you know, one of the highest offices in the world. Number three is The Diary of Virginia Woolf. 
There's something about diaries that I think offer a real, real behind-the-scenes look. There, it's all the boring stuff that you couldn't necessarily see in a movie or, or any other thing that you can just pick up and spend time with. I was, I was into Virginia Woolf before I read the diaries. I had read uh, most of her novels. She wrote To the Lighthouse. Uh, many people saw The Hours, which was based on her book, Mrs. Dalloway. And the behind the scenes in this case is Virginia Woolf's house, things that she ate, trips she made. And suddenly she says, I just finished the second part of To the Lighthouse today. You have this revelation and feel comforted by the fact that like just we're all the same when we go backstage. The guest list from Allison Pill. You can see her in the latest Woody Allen film To Rome With Love, which opens this weekend, and on the new HBO show, The Newsroom. And Brendan actually listening to that list made me wonder mm -hmm. what a behind the scenes public radio show would be like. You know? Glee. Definitely <laughs> glee. <laughs> <laughs> like that much geekiness and drama, but less singing, I think. Yeah. Folks, uh, we are going to take a break. Coming up, comedian Michael Ian Black explains why he went on a road trip with journalist Megan McCain. It was an opportunity to show my guns all across America. Details when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, we overhear writer Janet Groth reminiscing about her life as a secretary at The New Yorker. Among the seven women in the room, it turned out that he had proposed to three of us. And she's not even talking about Malcolm Gladwell. Incredible. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week are Michael Ian Black and Megan McCain. Their new book is called America, You Sexy Bitch. <laughs> and do you guys mind if I describe the concept in the form of an ad for a new sitcom? Would that be okay? Please do. That's a great yeah. idea. All right. All right. He's the liberal comedian behind shows like The State and Stella. She's the conservative columnist whose father was the Republican presidential candidate in 2008. <laughs> when they go on a road trip across America together, how will they decide when to turn left and when to turn right. That's pretty good. I liked that one. Do you want to play our wacky neighbor? I I already am, <laughs> I think. Only if I get to be like Suzanne Summers on Three's Company. <laughs> fun blonde. Well, Michael, you were on this trip with Megan. Was she a fun blonde like Suzanne Summers? I, I don't know Suzanne Summers, <laughs> but I know that Suzanne Summers is like an exercise nut and eats well, and <laughs> Megan is not those things. Fitness lady, I know. Oh. She's in really good shape. Well, let me, let me ask oh. you, driving across America, with someone you barely know who shares the polar opposite political views. Why did you do this to yourselves? You can't say money. It, it definitely wasn't money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> that's terrible. Um, we met at a very specific moment in both our lives where we wanted to try something particularly different and adventurous, and we both liked the concept so much, and both of us were crazy enough to go on a road trip with a stranger. By weird point in your life, do you mean drunk at a bar at 3 in the morning? <laughs> That's not so dissimilar <laughs> no, from the way it was. He yeah. was turning 40. I had a professional experience that was a huge failure, <laughs> and I was going through a bad breakup. I mean, we were both going through... I mean, I wasn't going... I mean, you were going through personal crises. I was just turning 40. <laughs> you were just awesome. Yeah, I, look... <laughs> 
The thing about me is, I've never looked better. <laughs> it was an opportunity to show my guns all across America. The washboard abs. So it didn't have anything to do with, like, you know, raising the caliber of political discourse in America. You just had the time and you rocked out together across America. I mean, I've been very interested in the way that politics is discussed in this country or, or kind of the way it's not talked about. It's talked about in a very specific way, which is angrily. Mm-hmm. And it seems very hard to have a civil conversation about politics. People just don't even know where to begin. So for us, it, this was an opportunity to kind of start the conversation, both with each other and then, you know, hopefully it'll encourage other people. Well, we've got some political etiquette questions here for you and a few non-political ones. Are you ready for these? Yes. Yes. We're, we're etiquette masters at this point. All right. The first one comes from Aaron in Seattle, Washington. Whenever I visit my grandma, Fox News is undoubtedly playing on one of the main TVs in the house. So I guess there's a couple main TVs there. <laughs> for me, listening to Sean Hannity is like nails on a chalkboard if those nails were also trying to rip out my soul. <laughs> is there any way to breach the subject of changing the channel without disrespecting my grandma's position as matriarch of the family also, if it's relevant, my grandpa is a fairly liberal octogenarian. What's she asking? Is there a good way to change the channel? Yeah. Look, grandma's probably not that fast. <laughs> All you gotta do, you know what I mean? You grab that remote, what's grandma gonna do about it? <laughs> but that's not very, that's yeah. not respectful of, of grandma. What about family values? I guess, yeah. To be respectful, you would say, grandma... Uh, it's very hard for me to fully engage when the television is on, and I really want to hear all the pearls of wisdom that you have to cast before me <laughs> as a Fox viewer. I see. <laughs> what if she doesn't fall for it? <laughs> and is yeah. like, no, I loves me some Sean Hannity. I don't know, Megan, you're the Sean Hannity fan here. I would say this funky chick named Megan McCain's on MSNBC now, and ah. she's a Republican. Tune into MSNBC and oh, watch what good, Megan McCain has to say. It's really smart wow. because that way you change the channel and you get a plug-in for exactly. yourself. <laughs> and that might make Grandpa happy because that's what I find yeah. interesting. Grandma's married to a fairly liberal octogenarian. Yeah. What, maybe he just has hearing problems. What's, what do you think is going on there? I think Grandpa sounds whipped. <laughs> grandpa sounds whipped? Yeah, Grandpa's just whipped. Poor Grandpa. Uh, here we go. This is Mary in Little Falls, Minnesota. And she writes, I was recently at a candidate's political event, and a person of the opposite political persuasion got cantankerous with the candidate, so much so that most of those gathered didn't have a chance to ask their own questions of the candidate. What is the best way to deal with a person who hogs all of a candidate's time in a rude, disruptive way? Hey, you got to be an expert on this. I mean, this must happen to you, yeah. to your dad all the time. My father doesn't let people. My father's always very respectful, but he's like, do you have a question? If they're mm. being cantankerous, which I like that word, yeah. um, could you get to a question, please, ma'am or sir? So I think sometimes it's up to the person that's being asked the question to handle it. It is interesting because in the political space especially, you get into dicey situations where, you know, shutting someone down might be seen as, you know, limiting their free speech. Well, that's, I mean, that's the debate that's going on right now with Neil Monroe, I believe his name is, the Daily Caller reporter that interrupted the president when he was making his speech on immigration, oh, making his right. statements. I mean, listen, I'm no, I'm no big fan of President Obama, but I think the president should be allowed to make his statements about something as huge as his immigration policy. Megan, do you have a question? Can you get to the question, please? <laughs> Wait, Megan's allowed to speak her mind. She's the candidate in this situation. <laughs> I feel like we helped Mary in Little Falls. It's up to maybe the candidate talking to respectfully. Yeah, Mary, you don't need to take on this burden for yourself. You were just a guest. <laughs> Cut yourself some slack, Mary. It's true. Uh, all right, here's, here's a non-political question, which I don't know, maybe is personally political. David in Montclair, New Jersey writes, In polite company, we watch our language, that we being he and his family, I guess. Uh, we were having dinner at a buddy's house in the Midwest not long ago. Ago, though, 
and used the retro term dagnabbit. My buddy's wife reddened and in all earnestness said, oh, we don't talk that way in this house. <laughs> this is the 21st century. Was I wrong? Those people aren't buying this book. No. <laughs> or probably listening to this show, frankly. They turned off as soon as we mentioned the title of your book, actually. Yeah. Well, look, you have to have some uh, vernacular to express yourself, you know, if not expletive, then at least emotive. Yeah. And Dagnabbit, I certainly don't think. <laughs> I feel like even Mitt Romney says Dagnabbit. Yeah. Who says, wow. there's some cartoon character that says Dagnabbit. One of them. Maybe Sounds she just like misunderstood. It. Maybe she thought he was saying Michael, this is NPR. It's not live. I just figured it would be fun for them. This isn't live, right? No. Good Lord. But you both raise a good question. What is left? If we can't say Dagnabbit, I don't think there's any way that you can express a high level of emotion. Would fiddlesticks have been all right? Seriously, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, fiddlesticks. We don't talk like that in this house, sir. I feel like if Romney is elected, this could be an issue because he does say, my goodness, and this has been written about uh, uh, and how some people find it really comforting because it reminds them of the 50s but other people find it creepy and kind of detached as much as i am not a mitt romney supporter i have no problem with this aspect of his character i I like it and by the way keep in mind america had such a problem with my father swearing from time to time Uh. so america make up your mind what do you want (laughs) somebody who swears or somebody who says goodness but at least John McCain, he swears like a sailor because he is a sailor. <laughs> he was, in fact, a sailor at one point in time. Dagnabbit. All right. Michael Ian Black, Megan McCain, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave in this election season. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. For 21 years, Janet Groth sat at the epicenter of the literary universe as the receptionist at The New Yorker magazine. Her memoir, The Receptionist, comes out this week. In it, she recalls encounters with some of the greatest writers of the 60s and 70s. Today, we overhear her read an excerpt about one of them. For a brief period in 1960, when he was in New York on academic vacation, the poet John Barrowman was of the opinion that I would make him a good wife. He proposed this to me regularly. It seems he was, in the years between his second and third marriages, proposing to every halfway decent-looking woman he met. It was perhaps his way of acknowledging guilt at the failure of his previous marriages and an indication of his good intention to do better next time. The campuses where he taught were checkered with other potential Mrs. Barrowmans, so it was perhaps not the mark of distinction it seemed in the moment. Late in the 60s, at a women's group, among the seven women in the room, it turned out that he had proposed to three of us. And that was only in New York, in his spare time. John Barrowman came into my life in 1956 as my teacher at the University of Minnesota. He was then a clean-shaven professor of humanities. A few of us lucky students would go out for coffee and further discussion after class. We would sit with him in some campus greasy spoon for an hour or as long as Barrowman's cigarettes held out. A couple of years after my graduation, he re-entered my life as a poet, eccentric and in his cups. 
One of his visits to The New Yorker brought him into contact with me on the reception desk of the 18th floor. Invitations to luncheons and dinners ensued. His courting was full of high-flown compliments about the magnificence of my face, the golden flamingness of my hair, the metamorphosis of my body from its former student shape into what he perceived as its present womanly glories. When I managed a diplomatic refusal to his continual marriage proposals, he went back to Minnesota. He married a young woman from St. Paul called Kate. I became a person he looked up when he came into town from his many travels. Kate waited at home in Minnesota with a new baby and hopes of his recovery from alcoholism. I would be treated to an early hour rousting out of bed, weary cab driver supporting him on my doorstep. As he sagged on my living room couch smoking French cigarettes, he would not hear of sleep, not even when he was unfit for conversation. What helped was music. Certain Mozart quartets or any of the Brandenburgs commanded his reverent attention even when he could not speak. Then one day I opened the newspaper to discover a photo of the bearded Barrowman. Like everyone else in the literary world, I was shocked to read that on January 7, 1972, John had left his home, walked to the bridge that crossed the Mississippi on the left side of the Minneapolis campus, and jumped. I found that those who had known him wrote or told about it as if the frazzled, bad-behaved neuroses were him. How unjust. Here is the Barrowman I remember best, the professor passing the light and culture of the past through the shining honeycomb of his passionate personality, informing it with life and intelligence. With him, we entered once more into the world of sacrifice and ritual, of meaning and conflict and beauty. Author Janet Groth, reading from her new memoir, The Receptionist, An Education at the New Yorker. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't. So if the topic comes up in conversation, we can hold our own. This week, in celebration of the first day of summer, the topic is summer fashion, and our teacher is Aya Kanai. She is a fashion stylist. Her work has been seen in Teen Vogue and Nylon Magazine. And Aya, what are some of the trends we're going to be seeing this summer? The first trend that I would like to talk about is what I like to call tone-on-tone dressing. I mean, head-to-toe Easter egg you know, pastel colors. And in fashion, it's been seen most prominently in giant, like, upholstery-level florals. Tone-on-tone. So when you say tone-on-tone, you just mean almost like just consistent patterns, right? Yeah. One of the most notable up-and-coming designers is named Joseph Altuzara. And his collection, Altuzara, uh, won the CFDA Fashion Fund Award 
What is the CFDA? The CFDA is a Vogue-sponsored fashion fund which supports young designers, and it's awarded every year to a different up-and-coming designer. And when Joseph won this year, he won with a collection that was inspired by Hawaiian shirt prints. Like like Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville? Yes, except a little bit chicer and, you know, made it really notable by having the look be a complete head-to-toe all-over print. How does high fashion get away with that? Because if you were kind of stopping to get gas while you're driving to North Carolina for vacation and you saw someone like that, everyone would snicker. You'd be like, this guy has no idea what's going on. But how, what, how come it's okay all of a sudden? How come it's okay? I think that when you take something that exists in popular culture and put a spin on it and give it a beautiful tailoring, it's possible to get away with almost anything. And, you know, you put a model in it, then you really have a get-out-of-jail-free card. When I think about it, it sounds kind of like a uniform look. Something like that. Do we as Americans maybe crave uniforms because, you know, uniforms are associated with jobs and There's a high unemployment rate. No, it's just fashion, Brendan. You can't overthink this one. All right. So that's one trend, a tone on tone. What's another thing we're going to see? As we all know, high-waisted jeans have been back for a couple of seasons. And now a more modest kind of swimwear is also trending on the high fashion runways. Think about the cut of a 1950s style, like, pin-up bathing suit, a high-waisted brief with a very structured bikini top that, you know, no triangle bikini, no little string uh, bikini bottom. Are you talking about covering up the belly button? We are talking about covering up the belly button and using swimwear as a place to be a little bit more demure. But isn't part of the fun of the beach is a little bit of uh, exhibitionism, right? I mean, this is going to, I don't know, it's just going to make the sea not as fun. I think so, but I think that fashion always wants to make its presence known. Um, I think that 1950s fashion and pinup girl look is something that has a real femininity to it. And so in small doses, it's a really nice thing to incorporate into your wardrobe. So we have tone on tone. We have modest swimwear, which is a really sad phrase. Is there anything I can look forward to? What else is happening in fashion this summer? So if you think that modest swimwear is sad, you might be um, weeping after I tell you about flat forms. Flat Forms, this sounds like a pun, which I usually like. Flat forms, as you could probably put together from the construction of the word, is a platform shoe with no heel. So it's as if a, a brick were attached to the sole of your already flat shoe. Oh, see, I pictured a doorstop when you first said that, like uh, without a heel. Well, I think it probably often could be used as a doorstop because they are most often made of wood or espadrille, um, in Marc Jacobs' case, glitter. I like how you say it like glitter as if glitter is like a product like like wood or like like yarn. It's like glitter, like there's a glitter forest. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I've been there. So these sound like they're easier to walk in. Is that partially why they're becoming more popular? Yes, I mean... Brendan, I'm sure you have not spent that much time walking around the New York City streets in heels, but I can tell you... I just take cabs when I'm in heels. Truly, yes. I should do the same. But from firsthand experience, spending an entire day in heels is torture. And women nationwide love a good bit of comfort. So 
This sounds like um, we're taking a break this year. We're relaxing a little bit, right? We're not in heels. We're not hurting ourselves. We're not feeling self-conscious about our bodies because we're kind of wearing bigger bathing suits. And we don't have to think too much because we're wearing tone on tone. Is that is that a safe thing to, to read out of uh, what's happening in fashion? I don't think that fashion is ever taking a break. Fashion is always coming right at you. So th this is a fashion sneak attack somehow? It's not a sneak attack. It's just a constant onslaught. So, Brendan, after listening to that segment, I still yeah. have no idea why you are wearing what you are wearing right now. This is my version of modest swimwear. It's a Speedo tuxedo. It is not very modest. <laughs> I disagree. Wait, but the but my inflatable cummerbund. It's an onslaught. <laughs> Folks, coming up, Ben Zeitlin, director of Beasts of the Southern Wild, tells us the secret to art. If you don't paint with a brush, you paint with an axe, you end up with a different kind of painting. That and more when the dinner party continues. Do you like my water wing bow tie? No. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we hear a new track from Avant Pop Band, Mikachu and the Shapes. Yes, but first, it is time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Rico, imagine a machine that for a nickel yes. serves fresh, well-made food in an instant. I actually dream about such a machine. I uh, believe that. It is also half unicorn, <laughs> and it's made of magic. I believe that, too. I don't believe it exists. This, actually, this machine existed in reality. All right. It was called an automat, and it was the centerpiece of the Horn and Hardart restaurant chain. Wow. Now, unfortunately, the last one of these machines stopped working decades ago. No! It's true. Don't take it away from don't me. Don't be sad. <laughs> Come on. But the New York Public Library has restored a classic automat as part of a brand new exhibition they're doing called Lunch Hour. One of the curators is culinary historian Lara Shapiro. Recently, I met her at the restored automat, and I asked her to describe it. It's a wall of, uh, of little windows with a turn thing and a slot for the nickel. So you drop a nickel in, you turned the slot, you could open the little window and pull out exactly what you wanted. Behind the automat, a drum would turn around and the, the person working behind the automat would put in a replacement ham sandwich or whatever it was and spin it around again. So this could be replaced over and over. It was mechanized, but it was fueled by human hands behind the scene. And those hands were kept behind the scenes. I think what's interesting is when you actually see this automat, you know, you can't see through it. And in old-fashioned movies, you would often see people communicating with the cooks behind the automat, but that's just not possible, is it? When Horn and Hardart created the automat, they made it absolutely secure. People could not talk to each other or see each other between. There would be no passing free food between. There was an absolute barrier behind the scenes in the automat so that you could put the food in and the drum would turn around and it would come out the other end, but people couldn't see each other. There was a kind of, oh, you know, a discriminatory soci sociological uh, explanation. Yeah, I was going to ask, what, what, kind of, what was some of the logic behind kind of veiling the people? Because today we want to see people making our food in a way. Open kitchens are popular, and this is quite the opposite. Yeah, they wanted a closed kitchen. They wanted to be able to hire and 
pay less people of color, and you could do that and keep them stashed behind the scenes. Nobody would see them. It wouldn't bother the, the white customers. So they, they kind of got points for hiring uh, black people, but they didn't get many points because they, um, they kept them really them. covered. Yeah. So they were able to reduce their labor costs. So it was kind of a shrewd decision. Yes, yeah. So um, they, they sort of had it both ways. But this idea that there's a human behind there kind of entered people's cultural imaginations about the automat. Everyone loved the idea that there was a real person there. And that's why this trope appears in the movies of the hand coming through or that you can, Doris Day and Audrey Meadows can talk to each other between, uh, between the sides of the automat. Connie? Connie? Where are you? In the cucumbers. You know, you're the first face that smiled at me today. I only get them when they're hungry. <laughs> What'll it be? I wonder if, if, for a second, you could just talk to me about the cultural forces at play that kind of helped the Automat come into being. The Automat was one of the wonders of New York. When Horn and Hardart opened it in New York in 1912, just about 100 years ago on July 2nd, they had the idea that Americans would love to drop a nickel in the slot, open a little door, and pull out the food. You wouldn't have to tip. You wouldn't have to deal with service personnel. You could choose exactly what you wanted, and the food would be good, and it would be inexpensive, and the surroundings would be clean and lovely. That was their idea. That's exactly what they built, and it really, really worked. It took off in New York like a skyrocket. Was there just also just a novelty wow factor, like a America has just did it again. Absolutely. This is, you know, it's like the first motor car or the typewriter or something. It's the mechanization of something that was always done by hand. And it just seemed clean, spotless, sort of perfect, recurring. I think it was, it was just very, very American. Such a great idea. What happened to it? I, I don't remember ever seeing one. And I grew up in Philadelphia where the first one uh, existed. They were incredibly popular through World War II and into the 50s. After that, it just became the victim of rising costs, labor costs and food costs. They just couldn't do it anymore. The quality of the food started to go. The restaurants got a little seedy. And a lot of the new office buildings that came up after the war, they had their own employee cafeterias for lunch. People could pack their lunch and stuff. Exactly. Little by little, the uh, automat customer clientele fell off, and they finally had to close. And another contributing factor was the design of the machines themselves, right? For example, they were famous for their five-cent coffee, but when coffee prices rose they couldn't adjust the prices properly. Yes, they could have covered the rising costs if they could have charged seven or eight cents, but they couldn't do it because the machines only accepted nickels. So in 1950, they had to double the price of the coffee. It was not a lot of money to pay for coffee even then. Ten cents. Right, but, but the psychology of it just bothered people. They were furious. Coffee sales plummeted, and a lot of people left the automat and never came back. Well, it just so happens that we are standing next to this beautiful, non-functioning version of one of those old coffee dispensers. And I have to say, it looks so regal. It's like, looks like where monarchs would get their coffee. <laughs> it's beautiful. They took great pride in the, uh, the, the way that the coffee was dispensed from these beautiful dispensers. You put in the nickel, you flipped it up. Black coffee came out and then cream from the same dispenser, exactly enough to fill the little automat cup. Again, we can't do that, but if you press a button, you get this. Take your lunch at the automat and you'll find that it's become high as you'll see. The 
members of society. Mrs. Belmont passing by, putting mustard on a Swiss on rye. Enrico, the automat is just one part of this larger exhibition they're doing about lunch. Okay. This show is pretty cool. It's filled with great stuff from the New York Public Library's archives, including, get this, a sushi menu from the 1930s. Really? Yeah, this is decades before historians thought sushi had even arrived in the United States. That's amazing. Actually, it, that doesn't surprise me that New Yorkers would keep their favorite restaurant a secret for decades. <laughs> that seems right up their alley. They don't want the tourists to run it. No. Uh, folks, our website address is not a secret. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is Ben Zeitlin. His debut feature, Beasts of the Southern Wild, won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance earlier this year. It's one of the most audacious movies, if I may say so, to take the top prize at that festival in a long time. And it hits theaters this week. And Ben, welcome. Thank you. Hi. This movie is not the standard narrative film that Sundance has been known for recently. I'm really curious to hear what you say when people ask you what it's about. <laughs> How do you, what's the elevator pitch? Um, I just tend to pitch a league of their own, actually. Um, <laughs> it's a baseball movie. Yeah, it's simpler. Uh, it's about a little girl named Hush Puppy who is living with her father in a town called The Bathtub, which has been cut off from the world by this giant water protection system. And it's about a series of environmental and also mythological catastrophes that come raining down on her and, and her world, and it's about her learning how to survive. Let's start with the mythological part of that. Okay. Your parents are both folklorists, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I imagine that you've sort of grown up with folklore stories. What elements of those did you maybe consciously or unconsciously choose to put into the movie? Um, you know, I think this film kind of started with very real, tangible things that are happening in South Louisiana, but I sort of approached the story more as a fable and wanting to tell a story that was about the emotion of the events, but not the events themselves. Stories like Huck Finn or like um, mm. Robin Hood or something that deal with the issues but aren't about, you know, dates and, and politicians and uh, whether or not you drive a Prius or something, something like that. It's much more of an emotional story. You know, I, I, I love the film and realized right away that it was operating on this sign of symbolic sort of folk world level. But I didn't think of Huck Finn. It's really true. Very much in the movie is spent with Hush Puppy on a raft with her father. Yeah, I mean, we, we always try to think, how would Hush Puppy see this? And how would she how would she make this movie? Like, what would be in her movie? And, you know, if Huck Finn were to make Huck Finn, how would he make it? And so we, we tried to very much kind of express uh, her through the way we made the film. And What's an example? Well, you know, like Huck Finn wouldn't shoot on a green screen. You know, he'd build a raft. <laughs> so that's what we did. You know, we built everything and, and we went on the adventure that she goes on and shot on location and the deepest parts of the marsh and the swamp and tried to not really ever fake anything and always work with real parts and real animals and get dirty. I should say this movie is kind of a follow-up to a short film you made called Glory at Sea. You shot both of these movies in Louisiana, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. They pretty obviously take inspiration from the events of Hurricane Katrina. But you actually moved to New Orleans to make them. You're not a New Orleans native. Right, yeah. What about Katrina captured your attention so completely? I mean, you've dedicated now years of your life to exploring it. You know, it, it's not really Katrina specifically. You know, it's I really started this film after um, Gustav and Ike in 2008. And I really wanted to... Two other hurricanes. Sort of tell something about what it is to live somewhere that could be wiped off the face of the of the map at any moment, you know, a kind of mm -hmm. constant state of hurricanes, of the oil spill, land erosion is related to it. And I'm just inspired by 
the kind of resilience and the survival mentality that you find in these places. And, and I wanted to make a film that, that celebrated that spirit. One day, the storm's gonna blow, the ground's gonna sink, and the water's gonna rise up so high, there ain't gonna be no bathtub, just a whole bunch of water. We stay right here. We's who the earth is for. I know you went through a lot of auditions to find Quivenjane Wallace, who is amazing as Hush Puppy. How many kids did you look at? About 4,000. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> um, so what did she do that like stood out among 4,000 children? The most specific thing is that she defied me in the audition, which was amazing. Um, <laughs> And I was saying, telling her to throw this stuffed animal at the other actor, and she wouldn't do it. She kept on sort of pump faking and not not going through with it. And then I had to cut the scene. I said, you know, why won't you why won't you throw the animal at him? And she told me that's not right. That's it's not right <laughs> to throw something at someone you don't know. And I remember how striking that was that she had this defiance at that age, and also a sense of right and wrong. And to see that in, in such a small little person, yeah. it, it was almost alien. We we never seen anything <laughs> like that before. Speaking of kids, you have said in interviews that almost any filmmaker will tell you not to make a movie with kids, <laughs> uh, water, or animals, and you made a movie with all three for your debut film. Which one of those was hardest for you to deal with? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they're all, I, like, I don't really think of them as hard. They're all my favorite things in the <laughs> world. It's like, I just love boats and kids and animals. It's what I'd be doing uh, whether or not I was making movies. And so for me, it's all part of the experience. The hardest thing is when you combine them all because you have three completely uncontrollable entities and that, that becomes a difficult target. But, you know, it's not like a war story. It's, it's, it's no. something that we set up for ourselves. We really want the films to be like an athletic event that you, you know, it's a challenge and you have to, in the moment, try to win the race, you know, which, which you never do, but you get close. What's the rationale behind that? <laughs> why, um, why would you want it to be an athletic event? You, you know, you hope that this kind of physicality of making the film finds its way into this on screen. You know, it's it's a different kind of brush stroke. You know, it's I think we're used to seeing films that are all made with the same kind of brush. And if you don't paint with a brush, you paint with an axe, you end up with a different <laughs> kind of painting. You know, it's, That's it, it, true. it's chunkier and it's messier and it has a different kind of texture and there are lots of holes in it, but uh, it has a different energy that, that ends up in the fabric. That's that's probably the creative motivation. And then there's just a life motivation of you wanting to just live these adventures with all the people that I care about who are all the people who work on the films. I'm going to make a big leap of faith and guess that you're a big fan of Werner Herzog. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely inspiration, for sure. <laughs> for those who don't know, Werner Herzog is known for, you know, punishing himself and his crew to the limits of human endurance and coming up with amazing films. We have two questions that we ask everyone who uh, comes on the show. The first one is, if we met you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Would I least like to be asked? Um, what was your budget? <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming it was small, although it doesn't look small in a lot of moments. Um, yeah, it, it was small. It just it just seems like the least interesting thing about uh, a piece of art is is the money. <laughs> yeah, good point. So we'll avoid that at all costs. Here's here's our second question. Kind of the converse. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything, about yourself, or something about the world in general. <laughs> oh God. Um, so you know, it's a very narrowly focused question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, you, there's these strange uh, water 
insects in in New Orleans and not in New Orleans down the bayou like the the bayou has this crazy quality where almost every day there's a different plague of insects you know and they seem to live for one day attack in whatever way that they do and then they disappear and you never see them again and one of the strangest ones is this type of insect that lives on the surface of the water and if you scream they get scared or they react and somehow and so the water actually reacts to your voice uh, in this crazy way. And so uh, if you clap or make a loud noise, all the water around you will jump. Maybe if people go see the movie, they can try to find where where that happens. I know exactly the shot that you're talking about. And (laughs) I actually thought to myself, how did they do that? Yeah, that was something that we were doing a different scene on on that location. And uh, our hush puppy screamed and, and somebody was looking at the water and got freaked out. And then she screamed again. They saw it again. And we sort of realized this crazy phenomenon was happening. It's just something that you find when you're far enough away from civilization where insects rule the earth, uh, you discover some pretty strange things. And Brendan, Ben told me that after a day of shooting, he would sit with Quivenjane Wallace, his young star, and actually Mm -hmm. put her in front of the computer and let her rewrite her lines for the next day. Wow. That's true. So you're telling me she's a six-year-old actor slash screenwriter. Yeah. I'm sorry to say. (laughs) When I was six, I was just a slash. That's right. (laughs) With nothing on either side of it. So we've heard from our guest of honor, learned a cocktail recipe, and even proffered some fashion advice. There's just one more thing to make a dinner party go swimmingly, the music. Yes. So we asked the celebrated experimental pop band Miki Chu and the Shapes for some suggestions. Hi, we're Mikachu and the Shapes. I'm Raisa. I'm Mark. I'm Mikachu. We have a new album coming out in July called Never. We've been asked to imagine what we'd play if we were ever to put on a dinner party, uh, what music we'd be playing to accompany our delicious food. Um, personally, I'd, um, I'd, I'd probably just leave it silent or just put on a metronome. You know, that is super rhythmic. Yeah. But I think it could get old fast. You, Good point. You agree? So how about <laughs> yeah. we play a clip from a song off the band's forthcoming album instead? Uh, this is a tune called OK. Also rhythmic, a little more dynamic. Are you sure you're in The song is called OK. It's by Mikachu and the Shapes, and it's from their upcoming album entitled Never. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks, but not forever. Join us next week for our all-movie summer blockbuster spectacular thing. Yes, pop popcorn, slip on your 3D headphones, 
and listen as the likes of John C. Riley, David Cronenberg, Miranda July, and more chat about all things cinema. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks to Bill Lance, Brendan Willard, Peter Clowney, Judy McAlpin, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. Bon appétit.